Okay, uh, good morning. I think we're going to get started. I know many of you are still coming in the room and bringing food in, so no problem. So uh, this session is going to be on multiple sclerosis, um, and I'm sure many of you have already been uh, trained on how to do this kind of um, questionnaire. So my name is Clyde Markwitz. I run the multiple sclerosis program at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And we're going to uh, do a soup to nuts conversation about MS today. These are some disclosures. And these are our learning objectives. So in essence, I'm going to try and cover as much ground as I can with regards to our understanding of multiple sclerosis these days. What is the underlying pathogenesis? How do we treat it? And then what do we do with the medications that we have available? They're awfully expensive. And how do we figure out how to utilize which medications and which appropriate treatments to, to choose. So MS is a lifelong disease. It involves many systems, motor, sensory, balance, coordination, um, and it leads to disability. And, and you see this in, in patients who are fairly young in age. And the problem is, is that you know, it affects many components of their world, including you know, uh, issues related to family planning, um, job employment issues, so this is a big deal in terms of um, you know, trying to think through a condition that, exp that spans their entire life. <clears throat> in terms of what we see demographically, you're looking at about uh, close to a million patients are diagnosed in the United States, and probably more than that has actually not been diagnosed because autopsy studies have shown that people um, after they had died and they looked at their brains, they found that they had lived a whole life without ever having a history of multiple sclerosis, but there's evidence that they had this damage in the brain and, and spinal cord consistent with multiple sclerosis. So it's either being underdiagnosed or it just never becomes symptomatic while the patient's still alive. Most of, the case, most of the cases occur in patients who are 15 to 50 years old, but we see people in our children's hospital who are being diagnosed at the ages of six or eight or 10. And we're also seeing cases now where people are, for the first time, being diagnosed in their 60s and 70s. It's not common, but we see it. It's awfully variable in terms of um, you know, what kind of presentation people get and what their disease course is over time, whether they have a fairly benign course or something more aggressive. And you see about a three-to-one ratio of women to men. Um, mostly um, the white population, but you're seeing this also now increasing in African Americans, in Asians, et cetera. And in terms of whether it shortens your lifespan or not, um, to date, we're gonna say it probably shortens your lifespan by about five to 10 years. And that has mostly to do with issues of immobility. Now, I'll go through the subtypes of MS in a few minutes. <clears throat> but in terms of our understanding of neuropathology, bottom line is you're looking at a process that's occurring where the immune system gets activated at some point. We don't know exactly why. And that immune system migrates into the central nervous system, causes inflammation, ultimately leads to symptoms, depending upon where it is in the spinal cord or brain, and then ultimately leads to tissue damage and that's what's responsible for the loss of function. And we believe that the prominent features are demyelination, where the axons are stripped of myelin, 
and they can't function, but then you get axonal transections and that's what's responsible for the irreversible nature of the disease. So let's talk a couple of things on the etiology conversation. So from a genetic standpoint, we think the risk is roughly about one in 750 across the United States. Interestingly enough, you see a gradient that as you move away from the equator, the numbers go up, and as you get closer to the equator, the numbers go down. And there's a, a variety of things that people have postulated about that. One is that, you know, maybe there's a genetic component, but there could be other issues. And we don't call MS a genetic disease because we haven't isolated a single gene, but there's probably many genes. And there's a risk that if you are looking at a um, family member, a brother or sister, their risk is about 2% versus the general population, which might be one in 1,000 or one in 750. So that's a significant issue there. But if you look at identical twins, the risk is about 30%. So we know there's definitely a genetic piece, but it isn't the whole story. What other factors could contribute? So environmental factors, things like vitamin D. Um, low vitamin D levels seem to increase the risk of developing multiple sclerosis, so that's an important um, understanding. So one of the things we're doing currently is trying to make sure patients are all adequately um, given supplementation for vitamin D. And we target people to get to a level of about 50 when the range is 30 to 100 or so. Epstein-Barr virus may be an important virus. You see a significant amount of people who've had mono, clinical mononucleosis. And essentially all of the population of MS is, a, is seropositive for EBV, which you don't see across the non-MS population. It's probably in the 90% range, but 100% are positive with MS. So there's something there. We don't know exactly what it is yet, but there is a high uh, proportion of patients who end up having a history of clinical mono. Cigarette smoking, probably a significant factor as well, but not only in developing MS, but also evolving as the progression of the disease. So patients who smoke, who have MS, seem to get more disabled at an earlier time point. They end up dying at an earlier age from their MS. So we know that the toxins related to cigarette smoking play a role here. So the issue of UV exposure, as I mentioned, you see this in the equatorial uh, gradient. And we don't really know why that is. People have postulated, well, maybe there are viruses that live in the temperate regions that you don't see in the equatorial regions. Don't know. But it's an interesting observation regardless. So in terms of immune factors, I'm not going to go this into any major detail here other than to say that there are many components of the immune system that play a role in multiple sclerosis. B cells, T cells, macrophages, NK cells, you name it. They're all involved, and that's actually one of the main benefits for the current therapies is that we've been able to target very specific cytokines or very specific cell populations to have a benefit in treating this disease. So just a minute on uh, the phenotypes that we describe patients. So there's the typical relapsing remitting population, and these by definition require two attacks separated in space and in time. When people presented with their first attack, we called it clinically isolated syndrome because they didn't have the second event to make it multiple sclerosis. So we now have the capability to make a diagnosis even at the CIS stage, and I'll get into that in a second. 
But now we have a population of patients who get MRI scans of their brain for a variety of reasons. Some because they had head trauma, some because they have headaches. And you do the MRI scan and you see these white matter lesions in the brain. And these white matter lesions look characteristic of multiple sclerosis. They don't look like nonspecific lesions that you see in migraine headaches or in hypertension. These look very specific for MS, but they've never had any complaints. So you can't call it MS without a clinical event. We call these patients radiologic isolated syndrome. And just to give you a quick synopsis of what that world looks like is that we've been following these people over time. And after a period of about five years, about a third of those patients will have a clinical event defining them as CIS, as their first event. And about two-thirds of them will ultimately have new lesions form on their MRI skin in that five-year time point. And these are people whose MRIs look classic for MS but have had no symptoms. So in terms of what happens to the relapsing population, over time, they can move into a progressive phase. And that progressive phase we define as secondary progressive, and it's secondary to having a relapsing course. And they just slowly get worse over time. And a small proportion of patients, probably not more than about 10% more or less, will never have had a clinical attack from onset. They just slowly deteriorate over time, and we call those primary progressive multiple sclerosis. These distinguishing phenotypes that we have, we think are important, and they have been important, but I'll tell you, as we understand more about the disease and maybe how the therapies that we have to treat the disease, this may become less important to us. The, the bigger questions become, are the patients inflammatory? Do they show evidence of clinical attacks, worsening neurologic function, and new lesions on their MRI scan that may be more important for the conversation about therapeutics? One thing we learned about, and on the right half of this slide, there is a lot of subclinical disease that goes on in MS. So even in that population who are RIS, who had a number of lesions, you know those lesions had to come up with waves of inflammation, but they were not symptomatic. And when they've had their first clinical event, you can see that they've had several lesions there previously. And when you follow these people over time, you do serial MRI scans, you can see these lesions come and go on their brain MRIs over time if you scan them every month. And they've had no clinical symptoms because they're not hitting areas that are clinically causing symptoms. And it's mostly infl inflammation. It's not tissue damage necessarily. So we've learned that the disease can be very, very subclinical for years and maybe even while taking treatments. So we learned from our clinical trials that, you know, MRI is a very helpful metric that we use to follow people over time. And it can give us a window into what's happening in the disease, even though the patient's feeling fine. So what we try and define people as being active or inactive, and what that means is that they aren't having clinical attacks, they're not having new lesions on their MRI scan, and they're not progressing. There's no evidence of worsening neurologic dysfunction. So we use this both you know, on our clinical and MRI outcomes uh, to make determinations and categorize people whether they're active or not. Now, the progressive population is a little bit harder to define and interestingly enough, they tend to be a little bit older in age, whether it be secondary or primary progressive. The primary progressive population presents later. So you may see the relapsing population start to show symptoms in their 20s and 30s, 
where the progressive population you don't really see for 40s, really you know, thir late 30s, 40s, and 50s. It's just an interesting observation. And there's probably a number of reasons for that on the basis of uh, as the body ages and how it deals with inflammatory changes, et cetera. So from a diagnostic standpoint, we do what is required at this point, which is you need to have had at least a clinical event, and that could be numbness, weakness, blurry vision, balance problems, et cetera. And then you get supporting data. And the supporting data is going to be MRI scans. It's the most sensitive test. But then we may look at things like spinal fluid. We look for things like oligoclonal band or elevated IgG synthesis. Occasionally, we'll do some electrical studies where we look at um, evoked potentials or an OCT scan looking at their retinas. And we do blood work to rule out other conditions that could mimic MS, like Lyme disease or lupus, things like that. In our current diagnostic criteria, if somebody presents with a single event, and it used to be that we'd say you needed to have two attacks separated both in space, two different areas of the central nervous system, and time separated by at least three months. As we evolved over the last couple of decades, we kept pushing back that conversation of uh, requirements so that we know that if you treat early, you can have greater benefits. So we said, okay, so what happens if you take a CIS population after their first event, you've done an MRI scan of their brain, and you see that they have a bunch of lesions that occurred at some other point. Can you use that as time and space, right? Two different areas of the central nervous system. So currently, the way we think about this is, if you can demonstrate time on one scan, which includes doing a gadolinium study, and if there's GAD lesions and non-GAD lesions, you have time. Because time on gadolinium is that when you have an active lesion, it's active only for about four to six weeks. So that gives you a component of time right there. So I can now make a diagnosis when somebody presents with an optic neuritis or a hemisensory loss, and they get an MRI scan and see several lesions with a couple that are you know, uh, non-active and one that is active, I can make a diagnosis of MS today. I don't have to wait any time periods additional to that. The progressive population, because they don't have a tax, is a little more difficult. So you just need about a year's worth of progression, and then you look on MRI as well for evidence um, supporting data. And, and in that setting, because you're looking at a slightly older population, the spinal fluid becomes more important. Because as you age, you get white matter lesions in your brain, and these might be age-related, hypertension-related, diabetes-related. So you need something that says this has specificity for multiple sclerosis, and a spinal fluid can be very helpful in that setting. All right, so we're going to kind of move into the conversation of treatments. And how do we think about the idea of treating somebody with a new diagnosis of multiple sclerosis? For one, every clinical trial we've done to date has demonstrated that if you treat these patients earlier in the course of the disease, you have a much better outcome. Once they have attacks, once they accrue disability, you can't get that back. So you've got to make this uh, approach way early. And then when we're looking at the actual individual patient, we're trying to make a determination, can we prognosticate? We used to say we can't do that, but now I think we have enough data that says we can look at an individual patient and be able to make a determination, is this somebody who's going to have a milder course, or is this somebody who's going to have a more moderate course? 
or somebody who's going to have a severe course. So we can break that out fairly accurately. I'm not going to say we're 100%, but we're getting pretty good. So we'll look at the disease. We'll look at the drugs that we have available. And there's a whole host of issues, and I'll get into that in a minute, about how we determine which mechanism is appropriate for a patient, which set of side effect issues, concerns for pregnancy issues, um, and what are the patient's lifestyle concerns at this point. And we do what we call shared decision making. <coughs> and that shared decision making is usually a fairly lengthy conversation, kind of getting a sense from the patient, what are their concerns? Where are they in their life? Where are they in their job? And then we make our assessment about where we believe this disease is going in the, in the short term, and maybe even in the long term, and come up with a plan that makes sense. And i got to be honest, I'm, I don't know who, are, who the audience is here today, I have to be honest, we spend a lot of time in that conversation, and then we find out from the insurance company that they're not going to approve that medication that we have spent that time with. It can be very frustrating both for the patient and for the physician, and then, you know, they say, well, you know, we'll approve it if you just, you know, get a pre-certification or something like that. But that becomes time and energy from the uh, physician's office. And if you're taking care of, you know, 10 MS patients, not a big deal. You're taking care of two or 3,000 MS patients. This becomes a full-time uh, proposition. The other piece to this is follow the people closely, right? So we know that if you have somebody on a treatment and they're having subclinical disease activity, we have to act. We have to be able to be uh, nimble enough to make a change in therapy based on how they're doing. And we follow them closely with MRI scans and clinical metrics and look at them kind of every three months, in essence, to see how we're doing. Are they tolerating it, et cetera? And if they're not, we switch their therapy to something that we think is more appropriate. This is kind of a global approach to the treatment. Wellness, we believe, is very important, and I'll get into the details about that, but we try and deal with their clinical attack frequency. Symptomatic treatments, and that may be a variety of things related to spasticity, pain, fatigue, depression, et cetera. I mean, the, the list goes on. So we have to manage all of that as well. And then in the realm of you know, the therapies that we have available, I'll get into that in more detail. So the things that on the wellness conversation are particularly important are things like making sure they're not smoking, they're getting adequate sleep, dealing with depression, checking their blood pressure and making sure their hypertension and diabetes are under control because these are things that we have learned over time that can be very important in the disease progressing if they're not being adequately managed. Vitamin D, and we try and keep people in a good therapeutic range for vitamin D levels, exercising regularly, et cetera. All right, <clears throat> so one size doesn't fit all. Every patient's unique from every aspect of what we're talking about today. So we have to kind of, you know, be willing to, uh, you know, adjust for that individual patient. Now, I'm going to tell you that we are starting to be aware of what the cost considerations, because a lot of the medications that we have available these days are awfully expensive, and we have to be able to kind of figure out how best to manage that. And I'll get into that in uh, the second half. So here's some of the prognostic issues that we deal with. You look at a variety of metrics when the patient presents, and we know that the ones who are going to be poor outcome are people who are, A, African-Americans, B, they tend to be a little bit older in age, males don't do, well as, don't do as well as females, 
they're smoking, that's not great. We really push them to stop that. But the things that I think are the big issues for us are how do they clinically present? Do they present with motor symptomatology or cerebellar onset versus somebody who's got an optic neuritis or some sensory complaints? The motor is usually much worse outcome. If they don't recover from their attacks is a bad sign. And then looking at their MRI scans, that can be very helpful because if you see a lot of disease activity that's been subclinical where there's been already significant amount of damage occurring, that is not going to be a good outcome for this individual patient. And if there's a lot of active lesions at the time of the scan, it's generally not good. And we even look at things like what's the location of their lesions and location of their um, clinical presentation. And if they present with spinal cord onset symptoms or brainstem onset symptoms, they don't do as well. And we know that the early frequent attacks are not going to do as well in the long term. So that's why we, you know, every trial we've ever done has shown that the treatment started earliest is going to be best because you can suppress the relapses early on and they're going to have a better outcome. And I, I'll show you a little more data as the talk goes on about that. It's also important to realize that, you know, you start your treatment early, and if you look at the cost, and I'll show you a little more data about this in a bit, the cost of treating a patient early is actually going to be much less than as you wait and go on later to, you know, in terms of accruing more disability and more issues over time. All right, so won't bore you with all the details here. I'll just tell you that we've done many clinical trials and the clinical trials, even looking at the CIS stage, that first attack, has really had its greatest impact. So a lot of the relapsing trials that we did back in the 90s with the injectable therapies, all of those showed benefit, but they were you know, hitting somewhere around the 30% range in reducing clinical attacks, maybe in the 50 60% range in reducing new lesions. Then we started doing trials at a much earlier population, and you're hitting into the 50 to 60% range in clinical attacks, and you're ending up getting a better effect on MRI activity as well. And ultimately, pushing off the likelihood that these people will progress and move into the secondary progressive phase. All right, so again, there are many pieces that we take into consideration here, and I'll get into some details, but you know, the, the big issues for us become what is our concern and what are the safety issues related to the treatments? Because back in the day when we had injectable therapies, they were pretty safe. It was more of a side effect issue related to, you know, okay, I'm going to put you on this medication. You may have some flu-like symptoms, some injection site pain. As we've gotten better, the medications carry an entirely different safety profile. And the safety profile is starting to look like what we see in oncology in terms of immune suppression risks of PML, risks of cancer, et cetera. So, you know, this becomes a very important conversation when we have to make the decisions about where we're putting an individual patient in their spectrum of where we think prognostically they're going to end up. We have to make a decision how we're going to manage that. This is the timeline of treatments over the last 20-some-odd years. Um, I'm not going to go through each of these in individual, but I'll give you some highlights about them. So we've got 20 different drugs. One, only one of these is approved for primary progressive MS. We have two that have recently been approved for secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, but I think that 
label is going to be changing with some, several, several of the other medications as well. And there are a couple of generics that are out there and more to come in the near future. All right, so I'm just going to say one point on this slide, which is um, there are people that we see in the office who present to us they're hot, as we call them. They show a lot of activity on their MRI scan. They present them maybe with a little bit more concerning neurologic event. And we go straight to the strongest medications we have available. And the reason for that is that we know that if we shut the disease down quickly, we're going to have a better outcome for this individual patient. And that becomes a battle to some degree. And I, I will tell you that um, the field the MS field overall is moving to a much more aggressive stance from the beginning because every single drug trial we've done has demonstrated these drugs are more effective and starting them earlier in the course is going to be better. So kind of like the way the oncology world deals with hitting it hard up front and then maybe you can dial it back at some point. We may be in that conversation. We haven't done adequate studies to address that yet but there are at least two large clinical trials right now ongoing to look at starting people on the most effective high-efficacy compounds from the beginning versus using the escalation approach, you know, where you start something, some milder medication. I wish you know some data. There is some preliminary data suggesting that that is a good strategy, and we probably need to get there. A couple of seconds on this uh, world. So we started in the ejectable conversation back in the 90s. Interferons and glutaramiracetate, we have generics for it as well. Um, they're administered either three times a week, some are administered once a week, some are administered every two weeks. Fairly safe drugs, right? I mean, we don't really see any major complications. Occasionally you see, you know, with the uh, interferons, uh, a monitoring issue related to a liver enzyme abnormality or a blood count issue, but for the most part, extremely safe. They've actually been shown to be safe during pregnancy if you want to keep your patient on it during pregnancy, so not an issue, right? We got the first set of oral drugs back in 2010, and fingolimod was probably one of the first. Was able to show a significant benefit compared to one of the interferon injectable drugs in terms of its benefit um, where you had 30-some-odd percent reduction with the injectable therapies. Now you're into the 50 to 55 percent reduction in um, relapse rates with the orals, oral medications. Teraflutamide is another one. But as you can see here, there's more monitoring issues because these oral drugs have more systemic effects. And the cardiac side effects with fingolimod, there's ophthalmologic, there's uh, concern for cryptococcus, there's concern for... Um, PML risk as well. So these are all issues that we have to deal with, but we know it's a more effective drug. So we're making the decision that here's somebody that needs to be on a more effective drug. We need to do this, and we're going to figure out how to monitor these people so that they can safely stay on the treatments. Teraflutamide, also an oral drug once a day. Um, this one has more of a pregnancy concern. So in the younger population, we don't really um, want to use this in, in people who are seriously considering starting a family, um, some mild side effects to this one, but fairly manageable. And then dimethylfumarate, which we thought was going to end up being one of the safer oral medications and still is fairly safe, does have some cases of PML out there as well. Um, 
causes a little more gastrointestinal side effects at least twice a day or also there are issues of compliance with this one. Now, most recently, <clears throat> there have been two new drugs approved this year, both oral, that have been shown to be effective. Now, this drug, saponamide, is the next generation of fingolimod. It's a more selective molecule, and because it's more selective, it has less of the concerns with regards to cardiac issues. Whereas fingolimod requires a six-hour of uh, in home or in doctor's office cardiac monitoring with blood pressure and pulse because it can cause first dose bradycardia. This drug, because it's dose escalated slowly over a period of a week, got rid of that. So you don't actually need to do an in-house or a in-office first dose monitoring for cardiac. If your patient has any concerns cardiac-wise, then you can do that, but it is not a requirement. And this study was done in patients who have secondary progressive multiple sclerosis and was able to show about a 21% reduction in disability progression in that population. Interestingly enough, the FDA did not approve it for secondary progressive MS as a label. They approved it for secondary progressive that is active secondary progressive, which unfortunately, I will tell you that there are plenty of patients in the studies who did just great in terms of slowing the rate of progression, who are not active. So I'm not sure that I agree with the FDA on their approach to this one. This one does require you to have some screening of um, some of the liver um, metabolism genotypes, so it's something that we have to do. The other drug that got approved is clavdabine. What's nice about this drug is that it's very infrequently dosed, so it's only given for five days by pills, and then the next month you give five days, you don't give another course until the next year. You give another five days and another five days a month later, and that's it. You don't need to give any more of the drug, and it's very effective, and it reduced attack rates in the 50 to 60% range, slowed disability progression, had uh, very nice effects on MRI as well. So all very good, similar to the other, but maybe even a little better than some of the other oral medications. Um, there's a black box warning on this one because there was a question of malignancies that came up in the original clinical trials. So if your patient has a cancer, probably not the best strategy. If they're at a very high risk for cancer, you may be thinking twice about it. They went back and looked at this, and there wasn't a real signal that came out of it, but there is an ongoing safety monitoring for this to see whether or not there's any issues. All right, so I'm going to move on to the infusible medications. And so the first one that got approved was natalizumab. This is once a month, outstanding drug, right? So it got up to almost 65, 68% reduction in clinical attacks. Probably one of the most effective IV or just drugs that we have to treat multiple sclerosis. The big issue with this one has been PML. And the PML risk, it varies in terms of what we believe in the risk in peak. And we have the ability to actually look to see what risk might look like in patients who have you can do a blood test called the JC virus antibody test, and that blood test, if they're positive, their risk is probably as high as 1 in 250. If it's negative, it's probably 1 in 10,000 or less. So we have the ability to kind of figure out who might be at greatest risk. And in doing so, if somebody's on this treatment and they've taken it for more than two years and they're JC virus antibody negative, you can keep them on the drug. If they become positive or are positive, at an index that's greater than 1 or 
Their risk probably is going up to a point where you might say one in 50, one in 75, depending upon what previous treatments they've had, and you may not want to continue that drug for them any longer. But it is a very effective drug. The disease is just shut down. Alemtuzumab, another intravenous medication, also very convenient. You basically do five days intravenous. Then the following year, you don't have to do anything for a whole year, you do three days of intravenous, and then you're essentially done. You don't need to do any further treatment. There are a number of issues that have come up with this one in terms of um, secondary autoimmune phenomena, and that includes autoimmune thyroid disease, uh, ITP, good pastures. There's a whole bunch of other smaller, less frequent events that have come up. So this one has a little bit more monitoring, and it requires people to have blood work, urinalysis every month for at least four years after their last treatment. That being said, very effective. It was tested against one of the interferons, um, and it was very effective in terms of uh, suppressing disease activity. But because there's that safety monitoring issue, it doesn't grab as much um, interest for most patients and physicians. Ocalizumab approved approximately two and a half years ago. Again, also one of the very effective intravenous medications, and this one is one of the only medications that has an approval for uh, patients with primary progressive multiple sclerosis. So if a patient has primary progressive MS, this is the only approved treatment. But they did two clinical trials in the relapsing population, and they did outstanding, like as good, if not better, than any of the other treatments that we have available. They were able to show a 95% reduction in new lesions on MRI scans, 40% reduction in disability progression, and, you know, it's fairly safe. So most of us who are practicing these days believe that this should be a first-line treatment for every patient with multiple sclerosis. Now, that doesn't mean that we do that for every patient, but at least it should be available as such because it has such great efficacy, and as if the field is moving into the conversation of hit it hard, hit it with your best drugs first, and the safety profile for this one looks fairly good. I mean, we haven't seen any major issues that have come up. There are infusion reactions. It might increase the risk for maybe some mild upper respiratory or bladder infections. There was a concern in the clinical trial about the question of whether it increased the risk of breast cancers. We did not see that panning out to be any big issue because they looked and it didn't seem to be overrepresented than the general risk in the, in the patient's from the regions from which they came from. So this treatment is probably our go-to drug. I mean, you probably have seen it has got a huge uptake, and a lot of patients are on it these days, and we think it's probably our best available treatment to date. This is just the data from the uh, primary progressive clinical trial showing about a 24% reduction in slowing the rate of disability progression. So again, when you look at this population being treated who are older, in the progressive phase, it's not as effective. But it is the only approved drug. Every other drug has been tried and has never been able to show a benefit. So this is probably our best bet there. All right, so in terms of how we deal with the issue of treatment failures, we monitor these people closely. And we, we watch them. We see them every three months. We get baseline scans on them. We get a scan about three to six months on treatment that may actually function as a new baseline scan. 
because we know that it takes some time for the medication to start having its benefit, and you want to make sure that you're capturing a good baseline at a time point that you believe the drug is effective, and then get a scan six months after that and six months after that, and you're monitoring them both clinically and radiologically with scans. And I know scans are not cheap, but the reality is it's much cheaper to get an MRI scan than to have them progress with their disease and end up getting a whole host of other ad additional issues. Adherence is a big de deal with the injectable therapies, has been a big deal with the oral therapies, less of a big deal with the intravenous because we know what the adherence is and the schedule is pretty reasonable. Um, but we know that there are a variety of things that affect that. You know, patients may have a perceived lack of, lack of efficacy. When they come in, they say, well, I'm no better. Well, these drugs have never been shown to make you better. We hope that they slow the rate of progression and prevent attacks. And when you look at untreated patients, you know, you may have an attack every six months, but a treated patient, you may have an attack every two to five years. So we know that this is actually um, having a significant benefit. And that five-year conversation is starting to look like even eight to ten years on certain treatments these days. So we know that we're getting better in that regard. As clinicians, we have to make sure that patients are adherent, and one of the reasons that this becomes particularly important is that if somebody's not taking the medications and you end up seeing them and they're having more problems or they're having more lesions on their scans, you're going to move them up the ladder to the next available therapy. And maybe if you assessed what the problem with their adherence was, maybe there was a depression issue that wasn't being addressed, maybe there was you know, some administration issue, et cetera, you wouldn't necessarily have to increase their risk of the medications. Oh, sorry, I went back. Okay. All right, so and what we need in the conversation is a multi multidisciplinary approach. We have many people playing into the conversation of taking care of patients, the pharmacists, the nurses, physicians, case managers, et cetera, and all of them provide input to the clinicians about how an individual patient is doing and trying to assess whether or not we can get good compliance for these individual patients. So this is just, when I talked earlier about, you know, making sure that the medication is effective, you know, you want to baseline them at a time that you believe the drug should be effective. And that's generally about three to six months. And I'm saying certain medications now that are more effective, three months is looking a little bit better than six. We used to have to wait six, but now we're starting to look at about three months. And with the metrics we use for determining are, are they having relapses? Are they having any worsening neurologic function? And is their MRIs evolving? And we look at this and we say, okay, so if somebody has any clinical attacks, that trumps pretty much anything. If you're having clinical attacks being a problem, we may switch you to something else. If you see progression, you may consider switching them to something else. If you see a new lesion on MRI scan, it may or may not be enough for you to make a change. It depends. Depends on what it looks like, where it is, et cetera. But these are the things that we have to look at when we're making the determinations. And when you're thinking that you want to go ahead and make a determination that you need to switch, you need to switch them to something more efficacious. Lateral switches don't make a lot of sense. So you want to go to a higher efficacy medication. And maybe in the future, we'll be starting with all these higher efficacy medications like alemtuzumab, fingolimod, natalizumab, rocalizumab. We may start with those guys and then at some point in the future say, well, depending upon the safety concern, we may dial it back with something a little bit safer. 
Now, unfortunately, when we look at a metric called no evidence of disease activity or NIDA, you look at some of the clinical trials, a firm was with natalizumab, fengolimod, you look at this and the data is that you're still only getting as high as 48 to 50% with the most effective treatments in terms of suppressing all disease activity. The ocalizumab data is probably the best out of that bunch. But even with a drug like natalizumab, you're still getting some disease activity that's poking through there. Um, so <clears throat> we need to get better. And we have several agents that are in development at this point, so hopefully we'll get there. So just to finish up on the clinical piece to this, and then I'm going to get into the managed care conversation. You know, So we look at this and we consider what is the disease course look like, what is the drug issues that we need to consider, and what are the patient factors that we have to consider. Because some of the medications, if the patient has cardiac issues or you know, frequent infections, we're not going to put them on a drug that's going to potentially cause more problems for them. So we factor those pieces in and really get the patient to buy into what it is that we believe is the most effective therapy. Now, last time I looked, you guys don't have that conversation with the patients, but we do as the clinicians. And you have to be able to respect the fact that we spend that time with the patient having that conversation. Now, I have no problem if you guys want to go do that and really call patients and really have that role in their care. But since you're not in that conversation to date, leave it to us. All right, so let's get into the cost, because I think this is a big piece and it's important. So about $28 billion is estimated for the total cost of caring for MS patients. And about 69% of that is the disease-modifying therapies um, of that total cost. And I am not happy that the costs of our treatments are so expensive. So I feel the pain that you all feel. That's what I can say about that. In any event, so... If you look at what happens with a patient with mild neurologic dysfunction, where the cost can be maybe $30,000 a year compared to somebody with more severe disability at $100,000 per year, and these patients are you know, maybe in a wheelchair bound, et cetera, this becomes a big deal. So if you're in the conversation of let's save some money, you save the money by making sure people don't get into that conversation of severe disability. And you really try and affect this disease early and aggressively to really have an impact to reduce costs. Because everybody looks at the dollar cost of a drug, but that isn't the total cost of an individual patient with the disease and what it's going to look like in five years, 10 years, or 25 years. And unfortunately, we don't have studies to address that issue. But it is an important issue and I can't tell you how many times I have to argue with the insurance companies about this conversation about if we could just stop the disease now, you're going to save money in the long term. But they're saying, no, this is how much this drug costs. I can get a better deal with this drug. Forget it. All right. <clears throat> so we know that um, drug costs have been increasing. And it's not a, a trivial thing. And the employers are the ones who these days who are really starting to feel the, the cost associated with that, and, you know, they have to make decisions about their plans based on that. And, you know, um, we would hope that we all could come together to work on this as a group, you know, figuring out how to uh, come up with guidelines that make sense 
and I know that you want it, we want it, and we all want to be able to have a way to get your patient treated on the most effective therapy at the best cost. And you can't be short-sighted about the cost today. It has to be looked at over time with global costs of the disease. Now, this one becomes a big deal for me, big deal for you guys. So, for one, cost of intravenous infusions has several components to it, right? So, the drug cost is one piece, and then the second piece is the administrative costs. And the administrative costs can be more costly, especially if they're done in a hospital setting. So there's been a whole evolution to this conversation of site of care issues. The insurance companies have come up with their own plans about how to deal with this. And I'm going to tell you, this is creating issues, both from patient standpoint and from physicians who are prescribing these drugs. And here's what it looks like. Patient gets prescribed a, a drug, let's say, ocrelizumab or even natalizumab for that matter. And they end up getting their first infusions in the hospital setting. And that's done mainly because we are there to observe the patient and make sure everything goes okay. So now you have a patient who feels comfortable coming to the doctor's office to be able to get the infusion, be able to see the doctor the same day or whatever is going on there. And then they're being told they have to travel to a site to go get their infusion somewhere that this patient has no clue to get to, may not have the transportation to get to. And at the end of the day, that site may not be a great site from a safety standpoint. They don't want to take care of MS patients because they're an infusion site that deals with cancer patients and they don't know anything about MS patients. And they're being forced to deal with this issue. Patients feel upset about it. The physicians are uncomfortable about it. And we've had several situations that have come up, both from a patient standpoint and from a physician standpoint, that say, this is a bad idea. And now we even have the next level called, we bought, the insurance company bought an infusion company, and now they have to get their infusions at those satellite sites. And this to us is another level of problem. Because there's a conflict in that conversation, right? Because now you don't know, and I can tell you, I hear this, I understand it. They don't provide the same level of safety monitoring. They don't prepare the drugs the same way. They don't even prepare them in hoods in sterile situations half the time. And so there's going to be complications. And I just worry that this is going to evolved to a New York Times article at some point that somebody's going to say, this is really bad medicine. So I'm just putting that out there that you guys should be aware that this is happening. You know, you know it's happening, but you know that this is happening on the patient's standpoint, and the patients are not happy. They don't want to have to go and do this stuff. Our hospital's trying to deal with that issue and trying to figure out how to partner with you guys about the cost piece, because we understand that it doesn't need to be that expensive, but it is a piece that we need to solve. All right, <clears throat> so this is just more of the same. Um, I think, and you know, look into the future over the next bit of time, there are several drugs currently that are in development right now, one of which just presented some very nice data. It's a subcutaneous administration of a drug similar to what you see with ocalizumab, and that may become available in the next year 
So that may reduce some of the administrative, not, um, administrative issues with the intravenous medications. But again, at the end of the day, it's not going to come cheap. I guarantee it. They'll come up with whatever cost they want it. All right. So how do we optimize this? And, you know, I, I'm a practicing clinician. I take care of probably close to 2,000 MS patients. And on our site, we probably have between five or 6,000 MS patients. We want to solve this problem. And we want to work with you guys. We are not on an island of our own out there. We really want to be able to come up with guidelines that make sense, that you guys can feel comfortable with, that this is what the MS community is doing, this is how we should approach the problem, and how do we contain costs. And I'm all up for that. No question about it. But the problem we have, and this is the problem that you guys have, is that when you look at a drug where um, we have data in a clinical trial that said it showed this kind of efficacy, and you look at the information from another study, and you say, well, this one showed just as good an efficacy, you cannot compare those across trials. This is a major no-no. And all of our pharmacy benefit managers do that all the time. It is wrong, and it is just bad medicine. Because you enroll different people into a different clinical trial at every time point when the disease is different, and you can't make those cross-trial comparisons. The best you can do is if you do a head-to-head -head clinical trial, and we've been doing that with some of the studies of late, but we don't have that for all the drugs yet. And as time goes on, you'll see more and more of this. But you can't make these decisions based on that. All right. Concluding. Bottom line. So the field of MS these days is, you know, quite um, evolving. There's probably an additional 15 drugs in clinical development right now. Some pills, some subcutaneous administration, some IVs, but all of which are trying to notch up give us better safety profiles, maybe ultimately even give us lower costs in the conversation. Uh, but we are working hard at this, and we want to be able to have the patient's care be the most important thing and remove all these barriers about, you know, that this is something that the, um, the doctors can't make a decision. Unless you guys want to get in the conversation of managing patients with this disease, you cannot be making medical decisions about their disease. And we can partner together to be able to accomplish what we need to accomplish here. So I'm going to end there. Please feel free to ask me any questions, but thank you.